Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me, as always, is the king of the madmen, Jeff Goad. Who knows what I'll do next? <laughs> and this week, we're very honored to have Cat, a.k.a. Martian Cat, head of the Red Planet Brigade, and uh, her Twitch stream is also, uh, is that also Red Planet Brigade, or is it just Martian Cat? It's Martian Cat. Martian yes. Cat. Welcome, Cat. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, thanks for being on the show. Oh yeah, thanks. I was uh, surprised <laughs> to be so asked. Kat, I was like, yeah, let's go, let's do this. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. So, Cat, we always like to ask the secret origin story of our guests. So, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into gaming and what your history is with reading sort of science fiction and fantasy? Um. Well, I got into gaming long time ago. <laughs> um. You know, one of the first games that I played was called Star Raiders, and it was uh, on the Atari, mm-hmm. and that was my kind of introduction to gaming. Um, as for speculative fiction, honestly, I don't really read a lot of it. <laughs> okay. and, so and- this was really new for me. <laughs> So you came in through uh, video games, but how did you get into sort of more traditional role-playing game, tabletop, and that kind of stuff? What was your route there? Sure. Um, my first really RPG experience was, you know, playing Final Fantasy on Nintendo. And mm-hmm. then um, I actually got into MUDs, uh, playing those online text-based role-play games and realized I could actually create my own characters and create my own backstories. And, you know, that was really kind of, you know, my, my introduction to that. I didn't start getting into tabletop until I would say it's been probably about 14 years ago, roughly. Mm I I got introduced to that by my husband. So Mm -hmm. I had never played a tabletop until then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he got me into champions. Oh, there you go. Oh yeah. 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 And so what's, what's uh, I mean, 14 years actually makes you a, a, quite a veteran. Yeah. So what's your, what, are, what, are the, what are some of the changes that you've seen in that time? Uh, I mean, obviously a lot more, especially in the last plague year, and now a lot of people are playing through Zoom and stuff like that and streaming. And so what's, what are some of the things that you've seen in that time um, period? Streaming definitely has changed a lot of things about, you know, about tabletop. A lot of people have come to it because they watch people stream the games. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest changes. I also think that there, there's been more of a push towards inclusivity mm-hmm. in gaming, um, which is good too. Because you know, I know I kind of felt a little left out when I first started playing. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And 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 and, and looking at it, inclusivity, you're talking about any number of things. We're not talking about specifically. Oh, not just racial, but you right, know, right. Also, I mean, I'm looking you know, at specifically gender, yeah. gender um, other. Physical orientation, characteristics, oh, yeah, orientation, absolutely. all these things like that. And you're, you're addressing a lot of these things in your yes. work. So it's really appreciated. And it's interesting how as we're pushing more towards inclusivity, there's also more and more of a push back against it as well. Oh, gosh. Yes. <laughs> the, yeah. yeah, I've seen a lot of that, too, online. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting because people then start to, you know, accuse people of virtue signaling and things like that. And it's like, you know, I grew up as a queer kid in Montana and small town Washington loving to loving playing dungeons and dragons and you know for the most part i can quote unquote pass as a straight person if i if i choose to when i was younger i was much more effeminate that was a lot harder for me and i felt really uncomfortable at a lot of people's tables and it's definitely something that i am 
really mindful of as I'm running games to make sure that I'm being as welcoming at my table as possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know for me, I didn't even think that playing tabletop was really something that I could do. You know, yeah. it's like, okay, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a black woman. So it's like, okay, wait a minute. That's kind of the thing that the white guys do. And so, yeah. you know, honestly, and uh, I, so I, I, but fortunately I was, you know, introduced to it with people that I really cared about and, you know, they were mindful of how, you know, how to represent, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, uh, so that, that was helpful, you know? So, yeah. So Kat, you had mentioned that you don't read particularly a fair amount of science fiction and fantasy in the course of your daily life. So what are your sources of inspiration for your gaming? Or is it movies, comics, other media? What's, what's really driving you in terms of what you're looking for? Uh, I, I, you know, for me, I really love horror and mysteries. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. That's really kind of my, my genre, <laughs> my okay. genres, <laughs> okay. you know? Um, and every once in a while, maybe I'll read a science fiction thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think like Star Wars is about as far as and it was, that's not even science right. fiction as far as I get into that. Right, right. And then on the <laughs> fantasy side, it's like, OK, I like Lord of the Rings and that's really about it. <laughs> so do you take anything from the horror and the science uh, horror and mystery for your gaming? What's what are the things that really like you think of some standout works or stuff like that that has helped you in your gaming? Yeah. Um, well, I, for me, I, I really love the novels of Anne Rice. So, mm-hmm. for, you know, oh, for fantasy, her, yeah. <laughs> for, yeah, for the Vampire Chronicles or uh, the Mayfair Witches. So it's, you know, kind of something that I look at. Um, and then other, I would say other books that, uh, or other authors that I would look at for, for gaming inspiration would be like uh, Dan Brown um, with the Langdon books mm-hmm. or um, the Alex Cross novels of James Patterson. For mystery, mm-hmm. uh, I think those would be th- those are really you know good books for inspiration. I think you know especially for folks who are looking for something modern to play. Mm-hmm. You'll be happy to hear that um, one of the books that is up for vote on episode one hundred and nine is Anne Rice's interview with the vampire. Oh, oh lucky duck! Whoever gets yeah. to read that, right. <laughs> <laughs> I love that book. <laughs> Now we we're, it's it's up for a vote because now starting with episode one hundred and one there is a um, we we present our patrons with a selection of titles from which they can vote on and that is one of the titles they can vote on for that one so we don't know if we're going to be covering with one or nine but it's, <laughs> it's 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 one of the options that's going to be available nice yeah all right so um, shall we start moving over to the library or is there something more that uh, Jeff that we would want to uh, grill cat about <laughs> before we go to the library let's take a look at which edition of the books Absolutely. we're working with yeah. I've got here this 1964 Ace paperback, and it's got this Frank Frazetta cover on it. Oh, that's cool. And it it looks very, um, like, early Frazetta to me. Like, it doesn't look, it's quite as polished as what we know Frazetta to be like, but it's still Mm -hmm. a very beautiful cover. Mm -hmm. Um, Although my copy is tattered and falling apart. Right, right. (laughs) And actually, I'll chat about this more at the end of the episode. But um, I'm going to be auctioning off the physical copies of my first 100 books oh, from wow. this from this uh, from this project as a fundraiser for my grad school, uh, and that that auction will be starting the day this episode drops, which is on July 26th. So if you're listening to this episode between July 26th. And whatever, 10 days after that is, I can't do the math on that right now. <laughs> you can go to eBay and vote on it. We'll have the the link available for that on appendix and bookclub.com and we'll tweet it out. There you go. Nice. All right. I've got uh, the 1973 printing, although I actually also got a copy of the same one that you had there, Jeff, because it came in a lot. 
Um, so this is also Frank Frazetta, but you can see it's later on and it's uh, quite a bit more dynamic and polished than the cover that you have there. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, so. And Kat, did you, were you reading a physical copy? No, I was looking at it on the Kindle. Oh, there you go. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Found it for like 99 cents on there. And then it's also actually uh, in public domain in Australia. So it's actually available online. Okay, right. Free read or um, Roy Glashan's site, freeread.com.au for, for those of you out looking out there. Do you have a high gaxing word, Jeff? I do. And I don't know what you think about this, but I am wondering if this should be our last episode of the high gaxian word of the day. Since moving forward, not every book we're going to have is necessarily going to be the kind of book that Gygax would have been drawing big, ridiculous words well, from. Well, it could be a <laughs> Hoygodian word. Like, <laughs> the whichever word that jumps out at us going in the future. I still like the high gaxian. I think it's, it's even if it's a sort of um, an odd, you know, sore thumb, I still like. I think we should carry on for a little while and see how it goes. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. I yeah, like yeah. it. But yes, so our high gaxian word of the day is... Brobdingnagian. Brobdingnagian. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> That's quite a mouthful. And that is found on page 111 of the version of the book that I'm working with. And it says the hillocks consisted of sticks and stones and boulders of all sizes. And scurrying over them were enormous ants carrying on on a Brobdingnagian scale, the same activities that I had watched their diminutive cousins of the outer crust engaged in upon countless occasions. Oh, yeah. So, yes, Brobdingnagian <laughs> means big. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah, I remember that word now. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> yes. All right. Kat, did you have a word, too, or is that is that our word for the episode? Uh, I, let's go with that. <laughs> All right. It's a hard one to beat. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. And with that, we can head on over to the library. Now, Kat, you had uh, tweeted at us uh, expressing concern about uh, this book being difficult to complete. So I guess let's. (laughs) So I think we have a little bit of a peek into how you feel about this book. But yeah, Kat, what did you think of Land of Terror? You know, it was interesting just because it's it's not something that I would have typically have read on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually stayed up late last night finishing it. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I want to be prepared. Let me finish this. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, we're the only podcast that assigns homework. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we recognize we ask a lot from our guests to read an entire book before they show up. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so um, you know, I, I, overall, I thought it was kind of interesting. There were some parts that were actually, that actually moved really fast in the book but a lot of it was really crunchy and some of it was actually a little bit repetitive so it was like okay i'm skipping through pages (laughs) like i'm sorry i'm skipping (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah hoy did you also find it repetitive i did um you know i didn't mind sort of like the bagginess between the episodes but like the whole sequence in the jukin village was like okay i'm trying to leave the palace and then just something like comes up and he just has to come back to the palace come you know come back yes right that (laughs) happened and I really like the ants, and I really like the cannibalistic giants, but the, they were literally doing the same thing, and those two episodes were juxtaposed right next to each other, right? Like, they just want to fatten these people up and eat them, right? Yeah. Um, and we had, you know, <laughs> David Innes is captured by X. Yeah. Um, David Innes escapes from X, and then is captured by Y, and then escapes from Y. Right, and he and- finds out that Diane has just been there, and he's going, Diane the Beautiful, and he's going to go try to find Diane the Beautiful. Exactly, yeah, so it's a lot of repetition. Right. And 
At this point, this is the sixth book in this universe that Hoy and I are reading. And, you know, there are some, some of these books are like really just like, they're full of some really like fantastically fun and also some really horrifically scary stuff. And I feel like Land of Terror was kind of lacking both of those fronts. Yeah. It's like, I'm sorry, Terror where? <laughs> I very wasn't briefly particularly alluded scared. To. Yeah, <laughs> no, very no, briefly no, alluded no. to. No. Yeah. And it's almost a little unfair, obviously, because we asked you to read literally the sixth book. And it's also apparently, what, 30 years later from the first book? Is that right, Jeff? So, roughly, right? Roughly, because uh, this book was 1944. Right. And I believe the first book is 1915. Is 1914. That right? 14. So, yeah, oh, 30 so years it's later. literally 30 years. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I oh, mean, wow. I mean, he might have written it even earlier than that, but it is roughly 30 years later. Uh, we were finding out, we have before the show, Cat. Uh, we have, um, for our patrons, we have a book club where uh, some of our patrons can join us and discuss the book. And one of them was quite knowledgeable. Deimos Sakalas was telling us that this was um, a book that even Burroughs himself had a hard time selling, even though he had sold 80 of his other books. He this one he actually had to self-publish because it was just not up to nobody wanted what, it. Uh, yeah, expecting at the time. So right. again, we <laughs> you know we try to find the absolute uh, worst <laughs> match between guest and book, and so I think. <laughs> but but what did you think? I mean, honestly, the, in terms of like uh, you found it sort of baggy and repetitive. But what were some of the things that did jump out at you, if if anything? The one of the first things that jumped out at me was you know right at the beginning. And it's, you know, we, he's, he talks about arriving with Abner, uh, you know, and Pellucidar. And it's just like, wait, instead of enjoying that there's some type of paradise out there that's way different than your own, what do we do? We tell them that what you're doing is wrong and we bring you war implements. We're going to yep. just do everything. It's like, oh, come on, you guys, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And what's interesting there is in the beginning of the story, that seems to be presented without any kind of commentary and no hint at all that there's any satire in that, you know, and he's even talking about how Abner Perry is preparing to have poisonous gas developed to further civilization. And at the point that that's expressed in the book, there's no way to tell that whether Edgar Rice Burroughs has opinions on that one way or the other. Then near the end of the book, we then hear him talk about how, um, um, actually, let me, let me see if I can find that specific thing. Um, yes, I can. Page yeah. 145. On page 145, he says, of course, we lacked poison gas and we couldn't drop bombs on women and children in hospitals, but our, in our own primitive way, we could do fairly well. So throwing in the whole thing about dropping bombs on women and children makes me think that this is commentary on using poison gas as um, an advancement of civilization. But it's it's done with such a light hand that right. it's it would be real easy to miss that. It's very dry. That yeah. way he says it. But but I think so. I think it is commentary and satirical. And maybe, but within the context of just this book, Jeff, I think you're right. It would be hard to detect. And what did you think, Kat? Did, was that, did you find that, like, at were, that point that, that he mentions, Jeff mentions that passage, did you feel that that, that was now satire? Yeah, that it just kind of, like, it was just glanced over. And actually, that happened a couple times, because uh, the, other, the other point that I saw was um, when he arrived in, was it Ruva? I think it was Ruva. Ruva yeah. The yeah. island. Mm. Um, when he had talked about how the the black men there had treated him better or more fairly than black people were being treated on the outer crust. So it's like, oh, interesting that, mm-hmm. you know, through all this, when 
at one point you mentioned that the first black men you saw had tails <laughs> and then now you're saying okay wait you know it's like maybe it, my my mind has changed about you know uh pe- black people you know because of how they have treated me you know more fairly it's like well, now it's making me think well we you know they were treated horribly in the United States since that's where he's from. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. So, yeah, some it's 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 kind of along the same lines where it's like, okay, you had some very serious commentary there. Yeah. But, you know, it just kind of just glanced over it, really. So one of the things that Burroughs is interesting because he is the uh, oldest author in this, what we this called the Appendix N. This is a list of authors that Gary Gygax had recommended that everybody read to understand, like, how to create their D&D game. And so he, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs was born in 1875. Um, and so this is literally sort of at the tail end of Reconstruction. He would have known people who had been in the Civil War. Um, and then he actually was an actually cavalryman in the Old West, although I, I don't believe he, uh, according to Damos, he didn't see combat. But he did serve with the Buffalo Soldiers. He's a white man, but he served with the Buffalo Soldiers and actually served under a uh, black sergeant, again, according to Damos, out there. So he had actually had close experience working with uh, black men who had actually would have and black people who would have been possibly former slaves. Um, and that said that he thought that they were good leaders and that he'd been well-treated by them. So he might have seen all this stuff well before the general public was seeing this. Right. Um, well, I was real nervous when we got onto that part because yeah. prior to that whole scene with yeah. the flipping of the roles in terms of who, uh, which race is enslaving which, we first, earlier in the story, had the flipping of gender roles mm-hmm. in one of the villages they're in. And here we had these big manly women who've got beards and big muscles and these like small men who they beat around. And at first, like it seems like, oh, haha, like Edgar Rice Burroughs is kind of flipping things around and like being silly with it. But then there's a very clear takeaway uh, where he very specifically says... If these women were the result of taking women out of slavery and attempting to raise them to equality with man, then I think that they and the world would be better off if they returned to slavery. One of the sexes must rule, and man seems temperamentally better fitted for the job than women. Certainly, if full power over man has resulted in debauching and brutalizing women to such an extent, then we should see that they remain always subservient to man, whose overlordship is, more often than not, Tempered with gentleness and sympathy. Oof. Yeah. Oof, yeah. oof, oof. Right. <laughs> so when we got to the scene where we had flipped the um, the slavery storyline, I was really afraid we were going to the same place where after exploring that, Edgar Rice Burroughs was going to say, well, good thing it's things are the way they are because that's where because white people deserve to be above black people. So I was surprised that he was so misogynistic in his in the first part but then seemed really kind of like not quite radically, but at least at least interested in ex- in exploring the conversation of race in a much more just and humane way. Yeah, right. when I saw the section, of, you know, what one uh, he was getting captured by the the women of Oog, it was I was very surprised by that. It was you know these women who are you know bearded and manly, and it's just like, well, wait, you know, women can also be tough, but it's like, okay, then I have to think about, okay, when was this book written? <laughs> so, yeah, you know, right. uh, but to describe women as basically men and even more savage is was. <laughs> it was kind of a turnoff. It was like, okay, what? Right. <laughs> you know, right? And it's hard to tell. Again, Jeff, uh, it is stated so boldly, and as you say, it's such in such a sort of um, unpleasant way 
there when that, that, that passes that you read, but it is still kind of hard to tell, like, is it 90% Burroughs attitude, 100%, 50-50? Because um, he does actually make a cogent point in there about that, that the brutalization inevitably creates, you know, um, deforms, deformed societies and deformed people, right? You know, when, when, he, when he's talking about that. Um, and this whole thing about the, the bearded women is like taking things to such an extreme. It's like the whole parody of those caveman cartoons that you see where the caveman bonks the cavewoman on the head and drags her back to the cave, right? Um, but is it still just a dumb frat boy joke that he's making or is it something more? <laughs> well, would have felt like a dumb frat boy joke he was potentially making if it wasn't followed by a paragraph that was concretely saying that men deserve right. their rightful place above women and women need to be in subservient to men. I mean, he, it's right there on the page. Right. Well, I'm really saying like right there on the, the page. It's definitely, lines. that's what I'm saying. It's definitely right there on the page, but is it David Innes or is it Edgar Rice Burroughs or is it both? You know? Well, it's, we don't have a whole lot of experience of um, David Innes as a strong enough, you know, character, character yeah. to really have the voice of David Ennis coming through over anything else. Because right. also, I don't feel like the voice changes when we're following a different character in a different Edgar Rice stories, Edgar Rice Burroughs story. Mm-hmm. So far so, that we've, yeah, so far the, out of the Yeah, right. so I don't think that is David Ennis. Right. Um, or if it is, I don't think it's more than a little bit. Uh, but then on the flip side of that, on page 143, the thing that Kat was talking about, he says... I must admit that the blacks treated us with far more, I'm sorry, with far greater toleration here than our dark-skinned races are accorded on the up on the outer crust. Perhaps I was getting a lesson in true democracy. So that's also clearly, pretty clearly stated too, that like, yo, the way that we're doing things right now in 1944 is fucked. And like we really need to be like looking at the way that we're doing this. Right. So it's interesting that he is advancing the conversation forward with 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 race, but, but not gender, not <laughs> gender. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's got to be you know from this. It's it's cringe is the very least of it, and obviously, it can become quite painful. So, <laughs> so if it was the case, Cat, I'm sorry we put you through that. Um, but <laughs> no, um, it was fine. I, you know, yeah. it, to me, I. I I kind of I laughed at it really because yeah, yeah. It, it, I did th- see the differences between that. It's like, oh wait, women can be subservient, but you know, yeah. Um, just related to that Ruva passage though, because remember that on Ruva there's that banquet after they defeated the uh, the other island, and he says it very lightly, and he's not saying that it's a, a wrong thing, but he's depicting it as kind of a wrong thing. The, the men are all at the banquet, but the kids and the women have to wait outside the ring and wait for the leftovers, right? And you can see clearly he's not like saying, oh, that's good. It's just like, oh, this is how the way things are done, right? Yeah. Um, I don't think he was completely comfortable with that. I right. really don't. You know, yeah. It's kind of right. like, well, why are we not all eating together You know, right. at the same time? You know? right. He may not have said that, but I kind of felt like David was maybe a little bit uncomfortable that that was happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and I'm not by any stretch of the imagination saying that Edgar Rice Burroughs is 100% regressive with the way that he writes women. Because also, like, on one hand, Diane the Beautiful is an object that keeps getting stolen – um, and we, the, the main trait by which we know her is her beauty. Um, but also on the flip side of that, we learn in the very quick summation of the whole end of the story in a page and a half yeah. that, uh, <laughs> Diane, the beautiful murdered the dude who had been bothering her. So clearly she's like capable, but I'm like, but I'm like, why didn't we get to see that? Like, I would have loved to have like been with her on the boat and experienced like her taking care of, um, Dogad. 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 Yeah, yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and also, um, in his depiction of Cleta, 
the mm-hmm. the gal from the the Mad Village, you know. Yeah. Uh, she he, you know she was very intelligent. Knew that it was okay to talk to to uh, to uh, oh gosh, was it Vor? Vor. Um, yeah. And David, without you know tempering what she's saying. You know, yeah. knowing that I was like, okay, well, I can trust you guys. It doesn't seem like you're the, like the everyone else in this in this castle. So let me go ahead and talk to you and be plain about it. Like this is what's happening, and this is why, and these are the people you need to look out for. You know, and so he didn't see, he didn't seem very condescending at all about Cleta. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and even Ora, even though Ora is, <laughs> um, you know, she's got like. <laughs> Like, yeah, she's like the quote unquote, like primitive gold digger or whatever. (laughs) But she is like very, very self-possessed and very confident (laughs) and very willing and able to seek out exactly what she wants, uh, which is also interesting. Yeah, I I thought her character was very interesting. It was just like, well, wait, it's like, well, I will have the slave. And it's like, well, how are you going to do that? Well, he'll just die. I'm not going to tell you how, but whatever the man man is that I have, he will die at some point, and then I will have his slave, and then I will take someone else that I really want. It's like, wow, okay. And then when she wanted to marry David, he's like, like, I'm not going to marry you. You're going to kill me. She's like, no, I'll kill your slave, not you, because I feel like you like her more than me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess it's very, um, uh, like, at least in the... And I don't know if this is an explanation, but at least people knew already uh, when Burroughs' youth that, although obviously we're still fighting these battles, that a good portion of the, our society knew that slavery was wrong and and had a war about it, right? Um, yeah. Whereas, and the way that we were treating black people after slavery right, had been Jim abolished Crow, was still... Uh, you know, yeah, the, the, the sort of, you know, the destruction of Reconstruction... Whereas the modern suffragette movement, modern feminism was something that was very much coming into play when Bro was already a middle-aged man. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so his room for flexibility and change was maybe less so. Although to his credit, I mean, he was still looking at stuff and talking about it. And you can see some certain progressions in his fiction. So he's talking about like modern warfare. It's a horrible thing, you know, and he'd lived through World War World War One. I mean, he was middle aged by then. He saw, uh, you know, the bombing of Pearl Harbor literally from his window as it was happening um, in Hawaii. Um, so he had a lot of things, to, you know, he had things to think about. And obviously, he's, cr- uh, cr- you know, created Tarzan, who's both incredibly colonial, but then in his later stories, it turns out that Tarzan is uh, with the Waziris, who are this, you know, ancient lost tribe, incredibly noble, and this lost city. So he had a, a, a range of things he could play with. We would still look at them and say, well, that's pretty dated, or I wouldn't want to do that kind of thing today. But um, he's also living through these incredible transitions in how our society thought. And we haven't gotten where we need to be yet, but he was like there, you know? <laughs> so. And it's interesting. I feel like we are frequently um, approached with a duality of the way that Burroughs sees the world and kind of this like conflicting duality. And I think another interesting one is, you know, on page 14 of my text, He's talking about how if you think the steam engine, the first steam engine was a marvel of ingenuity, how much more ingenuity must it have taken to conceive and make the first stone knife? Do not look down with condescension upon the men of old Stone Age for their culture by comparison with what had gone before was greater than yours. Um, So like that's a pretty a pretty intense statement right there. But then on the flip side of that, we also have David showing up and teaching. teaching the these Rubens. tribes of people that yeah. like you can 
fight by hiding in the woods around a trail. Yeah. I can guarantee you they had thought of that before, David. <laughs> and like that is not going to be something that like tribes who are constantly engaged in war. That's not something that never would have occurred to right. them. Like <laughs> it's not like firepower. Right, right. You know? Oh, I thought that was an interesting passage because it was you know the chief of of Ruva was like, well, that's not going to work, and we're going to wait in the village. Just, you know, when you fail. (laughs) It's like, well, so not going to fail, you know, flanking them is just, it's going to work just fine, you know. Right, right. I think uh, there, what he's talking about there is not so much like things that they haven't, uh, it's a cultural norm that's hardened into um, a a conservatism where they can't even think of anything might be different. So the norm Mm. is not to um, wage wars of total annihilation. Right. It's like, oh, OK, we've okay. lost enough warriors, especially when the, t- the islands get close to the point where they're interlocked. They mentioned that like if they're actually interlocked, they actually agree not to fight because too many of them would die. Yeah. Right. And so like massacring everyone on the trail is not cool. Killing three or four people like face to face when they get to your village. That's OK. Right. And so this idea of like total warfare as it was being practiced, literally as this book was being written, which is World War Two, is not acceptable to this to these tribes, people who are living on these islands. Um, so. It seems barbaric, but maybe it's less barbaric than literally the thing that was happening outside Burroughs' window in real time. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I guess that that's a good that's a good counterpoint to that, because I think you're right. You know, it's the way in which, you know, when Europeans were coming to North America and were slaughtering Native Americans to take the land. One of the first things that they encountered was that the Native Americans weren't fighting back the way that they were used to, because they were used to fighting people who followed like the, the laws of war or whatever. And these are people who fought very differently. So at first, that, that was really challenging for the Europeans to deal right. with because they were used to people who, quote unquote, followed the rules. Right. Cat, we're always talking about othering people, right? So once we other people, then we can do whatever we want to them, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, and you don't so, see them as people anymore. They're right. You know, they're someone else or it's something right. else. Right. And even this day and age, right? We have the we're the global war on terror. Oh well, the the Afghani's or the uh, uh, you know the uh, Al Qaeda. They don't fight like us. You know, they're cowardly. They ambush us, and you know they do roadside bombs. That's not how people should fight, right? That's not a, a real thing, right? And so that's a, but that's a cultural norm, right? Or, or at least a tactical norm that right. we believe. But any norm that we um, enforce is because it's to our advantage, not to someone else. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and I think this is potentially an interesting segue into the gaming side of the conversation because on page 50 of my text, it says, before I came to Pellucidor, I had never killed a man. But since then, I have killed many men, always, however, in self-defense or in the defense of others. It must have always been thus. So in this conversation of like othering people and then therefore it makes it okay to kill them. You know, we do that all the time in our gaming, like kill orcs, kill goblins, kill gnolls, whatever. They're bad, kill them. And personally, I find it really interesting when you strip all those away and make all of the all of them humans, because then it becomes a much more complicated and and emotionally complex issue of like, do I actually want to kill this person in this situation because they are like me? Um, Kat, I'm curious, do you think that that is something that's interesting and worth exploring? Or are you just like, whatever, goblins are goblins. Like, why are we stressing out too much about this? Uh, n- no, I, I, I think, at least for me, when I'm playing games, I, I'm not always thinking about uh, attack. 
And so I was sure. like, wait, is there another way around this? Can we reason with them? Are we able to, you know, maybe take a different route? Just do something different. Uh, not everyone is, you know, or at least not most players that I've played with are not always out for the fight. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great point. And I also, I thought that was kind of a cool moment when he was captured by the giant ants and he was like, man, if only they could speak because like, I can't even reason with these things. Like they don't, <laughs> we, we have no way of communicating with each other. He's like, I mean, I'm going to have to kill them to get out, I guess. But like, I was really hoping to like be able to use like my, my cunning and like charm, charm my way out. That was something that I noticed a lot about David is that, you know, he would he would get captured and and his escapes were not necessarily because of fabulous planning. It was either, you know, luck. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, just happened to be a storming the village that I'm being held captive in. I'll just use that as the escape or yep. I'll I'll talk my way out of it. So he did a lot of that. Yeah. They, <laughs> or thought, the giant ant bear. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, wait, wow. <laughs> It's now, never um, because of brilliant planning, even though he thinks he fancies himself the brilliant mind, but it's never <laughs> that's never what gets him out of trouble. Ever. Right. <laughs> so, you know, when you are playing your games and you create a scenario when your your players are trapped or otherwise sort of in a bad a big pickle, right? What is your uh, do you have like a secret out for them that? Uh, they, you know, like a giant anteater, <laughs> you know, just in case, or is you always let them do whatever, like futile, crazy plan that they have. What's, what's your, what's your approach to that kind of, that's kind of scenario. Um, it's every, you know, players, I guess are, are very surprising. They, you know, they'll, you'll come up with, they'll, you'll have one way that you're going to run it. And then the scenario gets completely flipped. So you're having to switch it up on the fly because of what players do. And it's like, oh, well, you know what? Uh, let's see. There's something that's up top and there's a boulder. Maybe we shoot that and drop it on them. We don't have to worry about this at all. You know? There you go. Yeah. So it's, it, it's good to give folks an, I think it's good to give folks an out. Just give mm-hmm. them the options. It's like, okay, look, you can either fight it, you can run away from it, or you can try to come up with something else. Let's, right, let's yeah, go. Right. You know? And what's what's your tolerance for the ridiculous in, in the games <laughs> that you, you, <laughs> you run or play in? Uh, you know, I, I love the, the idea of, you know, coming up with fantastical, uh, fantastical ways to come out of stuff. I, I remember I were playing in, in, a, in a game called Kapow. Uh, it's a superhero game and all of the, all of your moves had to be described. So if you were going to throw a fireball, you had to explain exactly how you were going to do that and how it looked. So, uh, you know, I, so yeah, if it's ridiculous, I love it. I think that's there fun. You so since you mentioned comics and you mentioned at the top of the show also, so Burroughs, um, this one I have no, was never published in the magazines, but he generally published stuff in the magazines in like six parts, eight parts. So that's that episodic nature would come through and he was used to working in that way. Mm, that um, explains a lot. <laughs> right. So do you have more tolerance for that, like in a graphic format, like a comic book and less so in prose? And if so, you know, what makes it different when you're looking mm. at that kind of stuff? Yeah. Now that I know that it was actually spread out into parts, that explains a lot of why it was like, oh, OK, you know, you're you get out, you're captured You get out, you're captured. That explains a lot because it was, you know, it looks like it was a one shot a one shot story. Right. Um, and in comics, you kind of expect it almost to be, you know, you know, the, the monster of the month or, you know, those scenarios, you kind of expect that it's going to end by the end of the episode or the end of the issue. So yeah, now, you know, now that that's been explained, I don't know if I really love it in a book form, but it's great in comics. <laughs> it works mm-hmm. in comics. 
another thing that I was thinking about since David Ennis is being captured so often throughout <laughs> this story, it's like if if um if things are really turning south for a combat situation with the party, uh, just reminding them that they can indeed um, surrender, and it could turn into a situation like this. Or if it is like legitimately a TPK, you can just say instead of everybody being out. dead, you've yeah. all been taken. Yeah, you've all you've all been knocked out, and you wake up you know, bound in a cage or a hole mm-hmm. or something. I've noticed that players are incredibly resistant to that and they will steer into the TPK sometimes and you just have to, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if it's it like more modern gamers are like more receptive to that, but you know, the so-called old school of gamers are less so. Unless you actually begin the session like in the A1 Slave Lords series of the classic D&D modules where they actually already begin start as prisoners, right? And then, you know, with DCC, they play, uh, which is Dungeon Crawl Classics. There's a lot of scenarios that start with your, your uh, prisoner or you've been knocked out and you wake up and you don't have any of your stuff. Um, and I think that comes from a couple of different sources. I think on one hand, the type of player who just like thrives on yeah. chaos will definitely lean into that. But then I also think there's the type of player who like really doesn't believe that their character can oh, yeah. will die. <laughs> so they also lean into it because like they just know that they're going to survive in the same way that like when we watch a TV show where the show is named after the main character, you know the main character is going to survive whatever scene, whatever whatever tense scene you're watching in the middle of some yeah. random season. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, that's that's always fun. <laughs> right. Now, again, uh, so just circling again back to superheroes and comics. So obviously, now modern comics, there are there is more you know graphic depictions of violence, and, and so called heroes are more willing to kill. Uh, and I'm not even talking about the Punisher. I'm talking about you know, it's just like your your mainstream character. How do you feel about? Um, is it a cheat to have um, violence have just end in knockouts and sort of lesser consequences? Um, should violence always actually reflect its potential in the real world? In other words, you know, you know, when you knock someone out in real life, that's not a pretty thing, right? <laughs> right, right. You know, um, and as Jeff was talking about earlier, uh, when your players or characters decide uh, that they're going to get into violence and it's potentially lethal, should that be something that, um, at least in your games, requires some thought, or is that something like, oh, this is our reflex, you know? I, I I would try to steer it away. Uh, general, typically, I don't run games. Mm-hmm. I typically just play in them. And there is actually a scenario where um, we, you know, in, in the game that I was playing, our party came across a group of people who were, they were sleeping. They were enemies, but they were asleep. And one of my, our party members just basically just wanted to blow them up. And it's like, why would you do that? <laughs> It's like they're asleep. We don't even have to deal with them. Just close the door and we'll go and get our stuff and we can get out. You know, and it's like, no, I want to kill them all. It's like, why would you want to do that? <laughs> you know, so it's like, okay, wait, there's somebody doing something over there. Let's let's go. <laughs> you know, so I had to drag him out of that because it's like, wait, we're not murderers. What is wrong with you? <laughs> you know, it doesn't always have to end in violence. Why? Yeah. 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 Did that. um did that create some tension at the at that time beyond the actual in-game tension, like at the table? Or? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it was because we had to ask, like, what was the motivation for that? It's like yeah. your character had never thought about, oh, let's just kill them all before. Right, you know right. what changed there? 
you know, and it was just like, well, they're enemies. Like, oh, okay, well, that's okay. not really an explanation, but thanks. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're like, I hope I never become your enemy in real life if you think just murdering your enemy yes! is no. <laughs> the right you know, thing I was like, do. all right, just throw the grenade in there and just blow them up. Like, wait, why? <laughs> they're not doing anything. Right, right. Exactly. Um, yeah, I had a similar thing that happened in one of the games I was playing in for a while that you know, we had character uh, people who were trying, you know, villains who were trying to rob us and would have potentially killed our characters. But, you know, someone put the whammy on them, you know, and they were charmed. And, yeah, you know, we, you know, but then the guy said, you know, turn around and we, it's like, oh, we'll shoot them in the back. I'm like, well, you know, they're already, you know, I can understand like knocking them out. They're, you know, they're out of the picture, you know, to make sure they don't come back at us later. But, you know, my character as played, I might have had a different character. It would be this different story. It's like, just didn't like, ah, I, I think I'm going to have to retire the character from this game if this is the way it's going. I mean, come back with a different character, you know? And that was like a point of tension for like a week or two in that game. Oh, you know? yeah. You know? <laughs> you know? Now, Kat, I'm curious, are there any characters or monsters or scenes or locations that you thought would be kind of fun to um, steal and maybe like, I know you don't usually run games, but if you were to theoretically run games, that you think would be something that would be kind of fun to throw in for oh, people to play from, in. from the, the book? Uh, yeah, from what we read. Actually, I liked the, um, the, the Mad Village. I thought that one was interesting because there's actually a lot of scenarios in there. You know, it's like, okay, when he, when David initially was brought in and he had to stop, or he, well, he felt he had to stop the woman from, from, killing her child <laughs> that was that was intense it was yeah. it was like yeah. wait you yeah. know he's like well yeah i think the the one of the captors was, had told him uh well uh, you know if somebody was going to stop me from doing that like why are they spoiling my fun what's wrong with you like why are you trying to stop this you know and i think that there are, you could actually play that i think a whole party could play that whole thing as a scenario mm-hmm. you know getting captured yeah. how do you get out and then finally escaping. I think that could be a whole, cam- you know, kind of a campaign on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked, I liked, actually, that was one of my favorite sections of the book, m- minus the escape. Mm-hmm. Right, because that part, the actual escape became kind of repetitive. It's just the, 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 the sort of roadblocks that kept on putting ahead were kind of mundane. Whereas, yeah. Then, yeah. And then I also felt like at the end of it, too, where, you know, Diane had basically explained to him how to get back. And then that whole section, he was basically recounting exactly what she had said, you know, and it's like, okay, we already heard this, <laughs> you know, so, it's, and, and, and he still didn't get home. I was surprised <laughs> that, you know, he followed what she said and still didn't get home. I, right. Yeah. <laughs> That's now, a, and it's another aside, I guess. As a player, since uh, which of these uh, situations in the book would you have liked to play through? You know, uh, you know the anthill or any of these things like that. Which one of them? Which one of them would be like? Oh, wow, this is fun! I've never seen anything like this before. If you were a player, the uh, the giants, you know, to just to all get saved by the mastodons at the end. That would have been an interesting surprise. It's like, oh, right, you know, when all hope is seemingly lost, and then you're rescued by animals that you had taken care of before. And it was like, oh, I could see that as a player. Like, okay, if you know, if I had come across the mastodons, would I have? tried to help them yes would i hope that they would come back and help me yes <laughs> you know so yeah i thought the 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 giants would have been a really cool scenario i think would be a really cool scenario to play through too and that's the thing that we see again and again with the writing of edgar rice burroughs is that we have our main character 
um, our main character will end up helping some kind of a wild animal. And because of that, they'll get some kind of a boon that will help them later on in their adventure. And I love the idea of like maybe as a, as a game master, we put out a situation where you have the opportunity to put yourself at risk for no particular gain um, to help out this like, you know, potentially um, dangerous animal. And if you do do it, then you can say as the game master, all right, cat, your character now has uh, the a, a boon with the mastodons. So if at some point you would like to ca- cash in that boon, let me know how you want to do it. So that as the player, you've got this like this the scene where like you're, you're you're kidnapped and you're having this big conflict, and you're just like Jeff, mm-hmm. bam! I want to use my 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 mastodon <laughs> boon. Right. I, right. I was like, all right, they're stampeding right. village right now. Yeah, and I thought that was a, that was actually a really fun scene to read through. You know, mm. and it and and I was surprised how fast that went. You know, once mm. they came through, they're crashing through the palisades, and it's oh wow, that was that was actually a really good scene. I I thought that one was really good. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. <clears throat> and I think that would be uh, since you mentioned that as a boon, that would be interesting, right, Cat, to have this thing and thinking like, when do I play this? Do I play it when it's going to be like the most fun, right, or is yeah. it like the most desperate for my character? <laughs> right? When you know, how, when do I play this this ma- rampaging Macedon card? <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, it kind of reminds me actually of uh, um, of a game system called Savage Worlds, where you mm-hmm. yeah, you get the adventure yes. cards and stuff, and it's like, okay, wait a minute, there's one where it's you know, if you play this card, all of a sudden some random person that you that you may or may not know just comes through and helps you out, or, you know, right. it's like it, you get people that will come and join your side, you know, when you need more, when you need more help. <laughs> right, right. You know, so yeah, it, it actually made me think about that. Right, right. Now, I think, uh, as I believe, Savage World is known for being quite a fast-paced game. Is oh, that I right? Love Savage World. <laughs> right. So, that, do you think that would yes. be Savage Worlds would be a good fit for this kind of like specifically Edgar Rice Burroughs stories? That absolutely, kind of absolutely. Yeah, yeah because yeah. you know, they, the scenarios were so fast. Yeah, Savage Worlds actually would be very. They would do very well with that. Now, there is another thing that was going on in this in this world that we're exploring, which is that all of the people of the hollow earth speak the same language. Yes. I was actually thinking about that earlier. <laughs> now, is that, is that just lazy or is that like a really nice way of just making it less complicated? Oh, I mean, I, I guess it's potentially lazy either way, but is it, is it good lazy or is it just lazy, lazy to maybe <laughs> have that in your like D and D game, just have all the people just, they all just be common. Yeah. I, in terms of games, I would say that that would be a lazy route to go. Um, sometimes you're not going to understand your enemy. And if you're lucky, somebody might be able to speak that language. Uh, so I think it would be kind of cool to, to keep it to where they don't, you don't understand their language. And, and so there's this potential for things to go incredibly wrong. They might be saying, we're going to release you if you just tell us where something is, but you have no idea that that's what they're saying, but they're gesturing aggressively. So you're thinking, oh gosh, uh, we're going to have to fight. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So it's, unless you get some lucky roll with charisma or something. All right. Is that something then, uh, again, um, in that situation, would you want... Uh, depending on whether you're a player or the, the game master, would you want some people to just drop a few hints in there that this is 
all is not as it appears or you know yeah yeah because yeah. you know that it gives the play i would say you would give the players the opportunity to you know to to figure it out it's like okay wait mm-hmm. are they really doing that or is this something else yeah right right and are the players that you play with the kind of players who would pick up on that kind of stuff or they would be like no nah, let's just fight anyway <laughs> <laughs> most of the most of the the most of the folks that I play with typically will try to either talk their way out or or do something else. So yeah, right. no, not mm-hmm. I, I'm for, fortunate that I don't always play with a bunch of orcs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like that great scene where um, David is trying to break back in to rescue Zor, and he's like, "Yeah, I'm from Gamba, the village of like way out there." And like, how do we know you're from Gamba? Because I know Zor. How do we know you know Zor? Because I'm from Gamba. <laughs> 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 and it just seemed like such a ridiculous moment that absolutely a player would have been trying to pull off too. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. That that was a good one. And he did, he did come up with some very interesting ploys, you know, that was, like I said, that was a theme that I noticed a lot that David would really try to talk himself out of it and that he really didn't fight unless he absolutely had to. And mm-hmm. I appreciated that about the character that, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, all right, even though you brought war implements into us, into a, <laughs> paradise <laughs> that you're not always willing to just go that go that route and be extra and just kill everything you know right, you don't right. always have to do that i mean even when he was on the boat with uh yuval who was like already told him he's a slave and he they were yeah. ready like no uh, you know they were literally in the same boat though right yeah so they, <laughs> they can, you know. it's like you could have taken him out but you didn't yeah <laughs> and that's because he didn't try to cross he didn't try to cross the boat he stayed on right. you know you've all stayed on his side of the boat had he tried right. to David probably would have taken him out because he, right. at that point it's self-defense. Right. So, and that was an interesting thing again in that sort of whole thing. Had the chief had told him like when it was permissible to fight and kill Yuval, and he was always like he wasn't even provoking. He was just literally waiting. He said, "Nope, that's not yet. That's not yet. That's yeah. not yet. That's not yet. Okay, now, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right." And so that's something that you could set up in again in a game situation where like, okay. You know, you could do this. You could go to A to Z right away, but this is what will happen if you do A to Z, right? right. You'll lose all your allies. Uh, so you need to kind of go to B to C first before you go to Z, right? And and as a, and to sort of put that out there, it makes the social reality of your game world, I think, a little bit more um, tangible, right? Wouldn't you think? Um, like now this village has a society that actually has some rules, right? Or this this game world has... So what do you think about that? Or is that just too like, oh, okay, well, that's very like, I'm just making these players jump through hoops. No, I don't think so. Uh, You know, I I think that, you know, giving, uh, giving the, the other (laughs) a little bit more humanity will actually, I think could possibly temper the way the the players play. Mm -hmm. Um, You might stop somebody from, you know, going all, all out. And trying to take everything out. If you if you present the scenario where, you know, the the characters have the option to either maybe assimilate and work with the people in the village, or take them out. It's like, wait, what do you want to do here? Why would you right, do right. this? If you if right. you're going to take them out, why are you doing this right. when they've given you no reason to? Right, right. And do you think that these incentives? I know we should move on soon, but do you think these incentives should be purely within the role play, or do you think there should be sort of some mechanical benefit, like oh, you now have like a character or bonus point, or is it just like okay, now you have allies and this you know interesting society? Like, is there uh, either or or a mix of both? What do you think? Um, I think just you know gaining allies in the future would be good. That's, that's mm-hmm. I would think with at least with a long term campaign that would that would work 
Mm-hmm. Uh, somehow, some you know, somebody come you come across somebody again that can help you out. Yeah, I could see that. Right. Um, or three mammoths. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, this whole conversation has just made me think of something really fun that I think I might end up doing to my to the characters in my game that I'm running. So. Um, you know how we were talking about how um, he could only kill under certain certain circumstances. How fun would it be? Because my my players are total murder hobos and they just kill everything. <laughs> um, I how fun would it be to have a curse put on them where they can only kill in self defense? Ooh, right. <laughs> <laughs> would they then try to go provoke situations to then say well, that it was uh, you know <laughs> one of my one of my players is a vampire. So <laughs> no, well, yep, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yep, yep, there yep. But yes, we, we we need to be wrapping up. Um, but Kat, this has been awesome. Do you have any kind of final thoughts about the book that you didn't get a chance to express? Um. No, I think I actually covered a lot of it. I I really thought that uh, overall the book was interesting. Uh, just it was kind of a little dry in some parts. I agree. Yeah, right. but o- overall I thought it was it was actually a really good book. You know, and I know it, and that was actually contrary to a lot of the reviews I read. Um, and it was a little bit hard also to come into it at the end of the series. So I ended sure. up having to do some research. <laughs> right. It's like, why did they call him emperor? Right. That makes no sense. <laughs> you know, and then for him to supposedly be this famous and the, the, the folks in the, what the Oog village didn't know who he right. was. Uh, yeah. Ruva didn't know who he was. You know, right. so, it's like, how are you the emperor of all this? And you, nobody knows you. <laughs> right. uh, so, so, you know, one last question, since, since we brought you in at the end of the series, and it's a, it's a lesser, uh, as you say, it's considered one of his lesser works. Does this, knowing that this is one of his lesser works, does it make you more fascinated to potentially want to read more Edgar Rice Burroughs in the future? Or is it like, okay, I'm done. That's enough. Oh, no. No, I'm actually interested in going back to the beginning and, mm-hmm. and figuring out, okay, we met David now at this point in his story, but what was he like at the beginning of the series? So, uh, yeah, I would actually be interested in checking right. out the first book. The first also, book is a huge amount of fun. Right. Mm-hmm. And there is one really great horror scene in there for you. As oh, there is. Right. <laughs> there we won't is say anything, really we won't say anything more than that. Though, but, scene, but yes. oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. I love those. <laughs> So, okay, Kat, uh, we're, we are starting to wrap up, but do you have anything that you are working on that you want people to know about or tell you more about your channel or your other projects? Um, well, sure, I can t- tell you about my channel. Um, on Twitch, I am what they would call a variety streamer. I usually do um, story, really heavy, story-heavy multiplayer and single-player games. Um, and then I also do uh, a read, a, like a read aloud, you know, for interactive novels where I do voiceover, which is kind of been oh, fun. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, and I've been enjoying that, you know, that's, um, and then I also play horror games as well on the channel. So great. And so that's, uh, on Twitch at, uh, Martian cat. With yes. a K. Okay. And, uh, all right. Uh, what are you reading? Um, original fiction or or other or the uh, audio uh, other books that have been um, you know sort of uh, popular books. At that uh, point on your- currently, it's it's a uh, interactive story app called Choices, oh, and cool. that's what I've been doing. Um, but I've also have uh, you know done uh, or given voice to characters um, in the Vampire the Masquerade uh, you know novel games. Uh, those have been really good too, uh, mm-hmm. the visual novel games, and those are a <laughs> lot of fun. Lovely. Uh, so the Twitch channel, is there any other place that people should look for you or your, uh, or your works? Uh, I also, um, 
have uh, a YouTube channel where I will put up, you know, uh, playthroughs from the stream. And then I also will do uh, some some reviews on video games that I don't play on stream. Terrific. All right. Uh, so we have to do uh, is it episode 109 list. Is that right, Jeff? Uh, before we, yeah, yeah. But before we do that, I realized I, at the last episode, I forgot to tell everybody who won episode 105, which is G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare. And the winner of episode 106 is C.L. Moore's Jarelle of Joirie. So that's going to be really fun. But yeah, now we need to come up with our our candidates for episode 110. So Hoy, what do we All have? Right. For episode 110, this goes out to Lucio, who is afraid that we're going to step away from Appendix N entirely, which we will never do. Uh, it's unfinished, unfinished Business Part 1. So our four candidates for episode 110 are L. Sprague de Camps, The Fallible Fiend, Sterling E. Lanier's The Unforsaken Hero, Andrew Offit edited Swords Against Darkness, and Fred Saberhagen's The Changeling Earth. All right, so go ahead and vote on those in their poll and uh, let us know what you want us to discuss on episode 110. Absolutely. And our patrons are able to join us before we record. And I would like to give a shout out to Dan Alexander, Damo Saklas, and Adam Styers, who joined us for the Patron Book Club prior to this. Uh, we'd also like to give a shout out to a few of our other patrons, Noah Green, David Willems, Matt Hildebrand, Joseph Hoopman, Evan Leatherwood, Robbie Fioto. Thank you all so much for your support. Um, our next episode, episode 101, is going to be the first episode of the new format where we're covering all kinds of different stuff. Uh, so episode 101 will be on Charles R. Saunders' Amaro. And episode 102 is going to be on Michael Shea's Nift the Lean. Uh, so those are our next two episodes. And Hoy, how can folks find us and reach out to us? Right. Uh, you can uh, send us a note at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. If you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. Thank you, Kat, for coming on. It's been an honor. Yes, thank you, Kat. So much fun talking to you. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. <laughs> All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>